Greetings and salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is Judo Chop Suey Podcast. And I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman. Coming back at you with another episode once again. I am going to have part two of my interview with Ajax Tadehara on this episode. Uh, part one, I, I would really recommend, if you didn't listen to part one, I would strongly suggest that you listen to part one first before I bring Ajax back. Our interview was cut short uh, because at the, mo- at the time I had to get my son. So we're going to be continuing the conversation and some of the talking points that uh, that I we have yet to cover. So uh, before I get uh, before I get into that, this is a little bit of a pumping the brakes here with regards to a piece of news that I had shared with all of you on the last episode. So it turns out the International Judo Federation has decided to cancel the Grand Slam in Tokyo. Now, as you can imagine, this is a COVID-related issue and. Let me tell you, in my opinion, this does not bode well uh, for Japan hosting an Olympic game. Because I, when the International Judo Federation announced that they were going to have a Grand Slam in Tokyo, that kind of was going to be a, a test of sorts. Not, not that the IJF was, was, that was their plan, but it really would have been one of the first times that that an international event uh is taking place in Japan since the pandemic started and, and it would have been a really good case to see how uh, the international judo federation handled the the grand slam how athletes were prepared how athletes socially distanced you know putting together rules and such with masks well i guess the international judo federation changed their mind now, according to the article that I read on judoinside.com, and if I said it before, I'll say it again. If you're not reading judoinside.com, what the hell's the matter with you? So, on this epi- uh, or, or in this article, I should say, uh, it goes, The International Judo Federation has decided to not hold the Tokyo Grand Slam as scheduled from December 11th or 13th. Amid coronavirus infection concerns, a source close to the matter told Kyoto News on Saturday. Judo sources said uh, Yasuhiro Yamashita, head of the All Japan Judo Federation and president of the Japanese Olympic Committee, had a teleconference with uh, IGF President Marius Wieser on Friday. Uh, That would be this past Friday, the the 18th. They agreed a mass infection could jeopardize next summer's Tokyo Olympics. Although officials uh, would like to stage the Tokyo Grand Slam sometime before the end of the spring. A scarcity of su- uh, suitable venues at the time means it might not be held at all. Reactions to the decision have been mixed. Uh, in, this is in quotations. It would have been huge for the Olympics if it, we could host an international tournament uh, with a contact sport like judo, said uh, one judo official. And, and whoever that anonymous source is, I completely agree with that statement. Continuing on, it goes, some accepted the decision as understandable, including Yoshiro Mori, president of the Tokyo Games Organizing Committee, who said Thursday the matter has to be handled carefully. One organizing committee source said, we cannot afford a failure that could impact the Olympics. Another Olympic official spoke during the difficulty in setting up immigration protocols in time. I felt it was tight in terms of a time frame to get preparations done. Well, let me tell you what. If, if three months is too tight for a Grand Slam, then in my opinion, <laughs> 12 months is still not really enough time 
uh, for something as massive at the as the Olympic Games. I don't see them happening. And I've said this, you know, numerous times over the past several months, especially over the past month with friends. And I think I even mentioned it on the podcast. I mean, when you really look at it, what is different today than was different back in February and March? I mean, not a whole heck of a lot. There isn't a vaccine. I mean, there's talks of a vaccine coming out soon, but who knows? I don't know if any athletes would be willing to, you know, take a trial of a COVID vaccine. I mean, I don't I don't know the logistics of all of that. And you know what? I just want to be perfectly clear. You know, I'm not rooting for a shutdown Olympics. I mean, I, I think I would love to see an Olympic Games, you know, especially with some of the stories going into these Olympics uh, from a judo point of view. And, you know, I certainly hope for the best, but I I just don't see it. I don't see how Japan can allow every single country um, that takes part in the Olympics into their country. I I certainly can't imagine them opening their borders uh, to athletes from the United States and coaching staffs and trainers and things like that. And in my opinion, I, I think Tokyo and, and well, I, I think Japan needs to decide by January, by the beginning of January, they really need to decide whether this, this thing is going to be a go because just from a judo point of view, there's a lot of Olympic spots that have yet to be determined. And with this pandemic shutting down IJF events, you're taking away opportunities for people to make you know, one last Olympic. And I know that's not, you know, from a fan's point of view, I'm not, I'm not concerned from, from that point of view, but I'm just simply acknowledging that that's a reality for a lot of people that this is going to be their last Olympics. They've worked all these years and, or this may be their only Olympics and they've worked all of these years and now it's going to be taken away from them. And I think it's a shame, but no, unfortunately I, I just, I don't really see anything different in this world. And, and the the entire world is not going to have a shift in attitude. You know, you know, there's a, there's a lot of hoaxers out there. You know, people think that this thing's a hoax and I, I'm not one of them. But I know the rest of the world aren't just going to come to some light bulb moment and say, you know what, we're just going to take this risk and not worry about it. I, I don't see that happening at all. Not certainly not on a global scale. I, I certainly know people that feel that way personally. But that's not anything I agree with. All right, so now that I got the news items out of the way, uh, I want to continue the interview uh, with with Ajax. Now, again, if you need if you need a reminder, I would strongly suggest that you listen to part one if you haven't listened already, because where I'm going to pick up will be really almost in the middle of a conversation. I'm going to trans transition. What I, I'm going to ask Ajax about. Um, you know what it's like being on the IJF World Tour and that in that in- entire experience. And uh, like I've said before, we're gonna get into uh, his his match with Teddy Renner at the at the Montreal Grand Prix. I'm very interested to hear his take on that. So, so without any further delay, here is our uh, continued conversation. So now, now speaking of the IGF, can you walk me through a little bit what it's like to be? At a at a Grand Prix or a Grand Slam, like I I, I don't know, do they sure. uh, in in the back? Do they serve like Capri Suns and orange slices? <laughs> you know, does do, do you do you get to meet with uh, Marius Wieser? Do you do you talk with other athletes? Like, uh, uh, leading up to a to your first match of the day, like what 
What does that day look like, uh, you, you know, start to finish? Sure. Um, a couple disclaimers. One, every tournament I've ever been to that's like different organization, right, different country is, is different. It varies. Little things, the size of the warm-up area, the shoot, right? I will say in a positive credit, um, the effort by Mary's visor to kind of, um, I had a word for it. I can't remember, but he, he kind of standardized the grand prix grand slam experience yeah. over the last few years. So the first few I was going to in 2013, 2014 versus the last ones I was going to, you know, you didn't used to have all the same. Now they have the same IJF grand prix banners in the background of every grand prix it's IJF grand slam in the background of every Grand Slam, right? But it didn't used to be that way. So they kind of standardized some things there, which is good. But even so, um, everything, every, every other little thing, you know, country by country is different, which makes it kind of annoying because it's kind of unpredictable. And uh, Interesting. So, yeah, so usually, you know, a guy like, a guy like Visor, you know, they got a VIP IJF area that, that they all kind of hang out in. You don't see them in the warm-up area. And you, you definitely, there is part of a transparency issue where the referees cannot like ride the same buses to the hotels. And then, you know, sometimes you stay in the same hotels as the refs, but sometimes not. But like, if like I've flown in with a dozen referees and I was the only athlete on that flight and there was a different bus to pick me up and they took a different bus. Cause we're not supposed to be on the buses together. Cause that's where payments happen. Right. So there's kind of, you usually don't see a guy like Marius. Now, occasionally he'll come down because he's got a personal vested interest in, uh, you know, Miklos Ungvari, sure. you know, the Hungarian champion of or course, something. And of course, right. Occasionally you'll, you'll be walking down the hall and you'll see him talking to the Hungarian coaches or, or uh, even like Jimmy Pedro, you know. Um, he's, you know, he's got a big history with IJF and, uh, he was inducted into the athlete hall of fame yep. yeah, world championship year, 2018. Yeah. And so he's at those worlds and, uh, you know, I, Jimmy's coming up to talk to me and he's talking with visor first. And then he comes up and talks to me, Jimmy does, you know, and, um, so sometimes you see stuff like that. Um, it's, it's really kind of strange. Like I said, the dynamic, there's a pecking order, um, it's kind of low key. It's unspoken. It's just like, it's just like being in high school, man. But a lot of these athletes didn't really, you know, for lack of a better term, they didn't philosophically mature. They may have matured as a human being or as an athlete or as a responsible adult who can show up to weights on time when, when they were kids, they were always late for practice. You know, they Go may ahead. mature in ways like that. They may mature in ways like I'm stricter about my food. So I have a better weight cut, but a lot of them emotionally and socially don't really mature you're locked in this kind of this bubble, this, right? Yeah. This bubble, this jockism, and it's this weird pecking order, just like high school. It's, you can be a, you know, there are a few champions that I've seen that are not popular and there are a ton of people that are super popular and they, they're, they're not champions. And then there's a whole bunch of people that are just popular because they're champions because they win right. and they can, they can do like, I'm, I'm serious. I'm talking like firsthand witnessing like dirty dirt bag, immoral skeevy stuff and people will look the other way because they're like ah but i mean whatever you know he's world champion and i'm like that's not okay it doesn't matter you know right they're like right. yeah but you know we're like who else are we gonna put on the highlight reel he's the best and i'm like dude he's a pos man you know personally um 
So it's an interesting thing when you're in the, like I said, when you're walking down the hallways, man, there'll be two or three, you know, athletes from a certain country. They'll be walking side by side, taking up the whole hallway and you're trying to walk the other way to your room and they won't move for you. They expect you to stop and stand at the side while they walk by you instead of going single file for two door frames to let you buy. So there's a lot of like low key kind of degrading skeevy toxic stuff that goes on. Huh? It's Boy, really, I yeah. It's I would have really, never thought that's, that's interesting. Yeah. But the thing is, if you say, for example, if you had Kayla Harrison on your cast, she probably wouldn't tell you that because nobody's ever treated her that way. Right. Sure. And sure. So sure. It's, um, you, you know, so it's really interesting to see, like I said, and, and that's to beg the better point. If I was walking with Travis or Kayla or, or some of the other, you know, top USA athletes, if we were talking, coming back from dinner, the same three people coming from the same room at the same time of day would be much more likely to move out of the way and let, and have a mutual passing if I was with somebody else, you know? Right. And I'm not the only one that's been on either end of that coin. You know what I mean? I've, I've seen it with a ton of other athletes, you know? Um, so it's really weird. And so then, so you wake up in the morning, there's like three or there's like a bus schedule with maybe five buses, right? They leave every 15 minutes. The weigh-ins for your particular day, the morning's interesting because there's the 5% weigh-in rule, right? Where they randomly pick four athletes from each weight class to, to check and make sure they're within their 5%. Now, what, what, what do you mean by fi- within the 5%? Within- yep. So we weigh in, if you fight on Saturday, you weigh in Friday evening, 7 p.m., 8 p.m. Okay. You got to be 81 on the dot or, you know, 80 or 79. You got to be in your weight class. Yeah. The next morning, an hour before competition starts, so if it starts at 10 a.m., at 9 a.m., the referees put out a list that has each weight class. They have randomly selected four athletes that have to go weigh in again, and you have to be within 5% of your weight. So if you're 100 kilos, you have to be 105 or 103 or 102 that morning, right? They're They're thinking, yeah, you ate dinner, you hydrated. So it's a healthier thing for the athletes because we used to have 6 a.m. weigh-ins and then you only had an hour to two hours, you know, to hydrate before you fought. Right. On the other hand, it's less healthy for the athletes because with this new system, athletes can cut much more weight and have time to re-energize and rejuvenate by the time they fight the next day. So now you're having more extreme weight cuts, which is why after 2016, you saw this entire slew of different athletes all move up a weight class. Yeah. Okay. That's so it's because they, for two years, they could handle a much steeper cut, but man, at the end of two years, it was too much and there were too many complications. So, so you, so you, so you got to know, you got to be there at least an hour before. Um, so a guy like Travis Stevens, he cuts tons of weight, right? He's notorious for extreme weight cutting at every tournament he's been to since he was like 20. Right. So when he gets done weighing in on a Friday night, this is what I witnessed, and maybe it was different sometimes, but just a few times I witnessed this. He would hydrate and eat a certain amount, sleep it off. You're going to lose a little bit of weight sleeping throughout the night. Sure. Wake up, get to the tournament early, and check his weight. If he was good, then he would eat some breakfast. If he was right on the money, he wouldn't eat anything until the list comes out. Then he gets to eat, or yeah. he has to weigh in, and then he gets to eat. And so there's a dynamic, and again, how – different athletes in different countries manage this um, really speaks to the professionalism of different 
people, you know, so we've had athletes on team USA miss their 5%. Um, some we've had tons of athletes. I watched this, um, Pan Am games, 2015 in Toronto, Jake Larson, 90 kilos gets picked for 5%. He's got about roughly 50 minutes and he's two and a half, he's 2.4 kilos over. So he had to cut 2.4 kilos in like about 50, 55 minutes. That's a lot. And weigh in. Yeah. And Gosh. that was his warm up. So then he had to weigh in. He made it exactly nine, like it was what, like 94.5, I think is 5% for 90 kilos. Yeah. So he was at like 96 and some change, right? He gets down to 94.5 exactly on the dot. And the very last minute that he's like allowed to weigh in, you know, and, uh, and then he just goes and he just, you know, he's got to suck down all the water and Gatorade. He sweated out two and a half kilos. He's exhausted. He's toast. And he doesn't even warm up after that. Cause that was such an ordeal that his body's warm. And, but you know what? He went out and he took a bronze medal that day. He beat the crap out of a bunch of people. He still took bronze. Yeah. Um, so your morning could look like that or you don't get picked. Cool. You're just warming up. Everybody's got a different timeline on how much warm-up they need before their match. And that's a really tough situation because, you know, in judo, a match can be literally 10 seconds or it can be literally 10 minutes. Right. So if you're match number 20, match number 30, match number 40, generally the rule of thumb is it's about an hour per 10 matches. So that's match time plus coming out of the shoe, bowing on, bowing off, right? Any mates, it's a four-minute match, but with all your mates, it's a six-and-a-half-minute runtime. Sure. Mm-hmm. So generally, the rule of thumb is it's about ten minutes per, or ten matches per hour. Heavyweights are always a little bit quicker because there's more epones sooner. Lightweights yeah. are longer. There's a lot more overtime matches. Um, so some people only want to do about forty, forty-five minute warm-up. Some people want to do an hour and fifteen minutes. So you got to choose this bus. That's going to get you there earlier. Sometimes the organization chooses for you. Like we, towards the end of my career, we were much more organized in this asset, in this aspect. The coach would say, if you're competing today, you're taking the 630 bus. If you're not competing, the other buses are 645, 7, 715, and 730. Be on one of those buses to come watch your teammates, right? And if you had to cut weight that day, it was allowed that you would, you could stay at the hotel and cut weight, you know, but if you didn't have to cut weight or if your weight was good, you were expected to show up and cheer on your teammates, yeah. which again, was wildly different than the previous um, few years. It was not like that. So some good changes, but anyway, so you get there. And like I said, some people like to warm up for 45 minutes and then hang around for 30 minutes. And then right before they go into the shoot, do a really intense fast twitch muscle circuit to burn their lungs out and get all your muscle fibers just twitchy and then go fight. So everybody's routine's different. Huh. One thing I will say that always just ultimate pet peeve of mine pissed me off, unnerved me to no end. And there are like four exceptions that I can think of off the top of my head. Every tournament I went to, the open level, Pan Am Championships, World Championships, Grand Prix, Grand Slam, almost every country the warm-up areas were always way too fucking small. <laughs> Couldn't stand it. Could not stand it, man. It killed me. They were too small. And this is where you kind of, like I said, realize like, well, how much is judo really respect when you're talking about Olympic judo versus martial art? Martial art, it's 100% respect. Yeah, Olympic right. Olympic judo, 
it wanes and wanes by country, by individual, by whatever. So you've got like a warm-up area, say it's one competition area, whatever. Sometimes the tournament would have a one mat area for warm-ups and there would be a ton of space around it. So you could put all your bags around it. Almost always, that was not the case. The, war- the mats went like wall-to-wall in the warm-up room, which means that then athletes flood in. You got nowhere to put your bags and your water and your Gatorades and your slippers. So you bring all your bags on the mat. So now you got athletes warming up. Literally, we're tripping over other athletes' bags. Right. And other athletes are running into you, and they're grip fighting, and you're trying to do Uchikomi, and you're trying to do push-ups, and they're doing Nawaza rolls, and you're getting hit, and they're getting hit. And they're all – everybody's got an attitude that you're the problem and it's not them. Right. You know what I mean? Like, no matter – you bump into them, they bump into you. It doesn't matter. They're always going to give you dirty looks, and it's kind of expected that you're going to give them dirty looks back. You know what I mean? You're going to be like, oh, you're in my way, and they're going to be like, oh, you're in my way. And it's just kind of a, a mutually agreed, like, ordeal that it's okay to just scowl at people and be like, move your bag. And you're like, where am I supposed to put it, you know? Because your bag's literally up against the wall, but it's also literally out in the warm-up area. It's really – I don't know how they can't find a better solution. There's, there's no minimum requirement, you know. If the tournament's 400 athletes, the warm-up area has to be at least this many tatami. There's no, like, requirement when these tournaments, when these countries or organizations host tournaments. And I'm talking do Tokyo Grand Slam, right? Home of judo in Japan. And the warm-up area is overrun with bags. And people will, like I said, they came on the early bus with their team, but they're not until match 40, so they're not going to warm up for another hour. So they're laying with their bag as their pillow, and they're taking up like two to three meters of tatami because they're laying down on the mat, you know, with their headphones in, playing games on their iPhone, oh, trying phone, to relax right. before they before they have to warm up and compete. And you're you're like, oh, I'm match number two. I gotta get going. I gotta warm up and get get after it. And they don't give. They just don't give a shit. They're like, yeah, whatever, kid. Try and warm up here. I'm laying down, and you're like, dude, have some respect, have some decency, you know. And some of them are cool about it, but generally speaking, like. It's just a crap show, man. I don't, I don't understand it. So it's. So Ajax, I wanted to um, talk about your experience at the Montreal Grand Prix, um, and and I want to get into your contest with Teddy Renner. But but first things first, what were your overall impressions on the Montreal Grand Prix, and how do you feel that event compared to other events that you've taken part of, uh, uh, you know, across the Atlantic? Um, overall Montreal was a pr- was pretty, pretty well ran, pretty organized. Um, it went really smooth in terms of registration and transportation. Uh, hotel was good. I think overall it's probably on one of the upper end of the Grand Prix Grand Slam tournaments I've been to as far as, like I said, organization, smoothness, um, a nitpicking point of mine from last, last time we talked the warm-up area was substantially smaller than I would prefer, especially <laughs> a tall athlete. You know, I'm like, come on, heavyweight day warm-ups. The place is just completely packed, and we have less competitors than the other brackets. So it's just a pet peeve of mine no matter what. Right. But otherwise, um, like I said, the event ran smoothly. The mats were clean. The shoot was fine. They started an initiative sometime in the summer where – for about four or five or maybe even more tournaments, the IJF wanted to 
they had they brought in a professional photographer and they wanted to get like a headshot um a standing pose and maybe like a winning pose and add it to your professional profile you know with with nice lighting nice cameras the same photographer so you're getting the same quality previously you know let's say judo would submit a headshot to the igf and they would use that for your profile so they're they're trying to step up and so that was part of the thing that happened at montreal grand prix was you know at one point during my day you know these these organizers these volunteers come up and find you and they're like hey hey you're you're tadahara you know you're the kid from usa you got to go take your picture white gi only um and they found me after i had just gotten tossed by teddy and was all sweaty and gross and my hair looked bad and i was you know i'm like oh good time for a photo like this you know (laughs) but it was an interesting aspect to to the general experience otherwise it was honestly one of the better tournaments i've been to clean venue clean bathrooms things like that it was it was a good tournament they did well i was happy to be in canada yeah so that being said um, I don't know the kind of costs that are involved uh, traveling to one of these events. I would think it would be cheaper going up to Canada, but is, was that the case for you? Was it cheaper all around to travel there or was it almost the same? Uh, it was only cheaper for one very specific reason. I was living in Boston at the time at training at Pedro's Judo Center. And it was, it's about a five and a half, six hour drive. So I was able to drive up my wife got to come watch the tournament. She doesn't get to make it to many. So that was a really nice aspect. Nice. Driving there was great. Previously, I had I'd flown from like Denver, Colorado to Montreal to do training camps. Um, and that kind of puts it almost, it's the, almost the same as flying to Europe because Denver has direct flights to Frankfurt. And so honestly, the cost of the tournament was about the same for most people. Except for the fact that I got to drive. Yeah, it actually didn't help much just because of how geographically big the United States is, like I said, and maybe you know, a little cheaper than flying to Asia, for sure. If you're flying from Boston to Asia, then it's more expensive. But if you're flying from San Jose State to Asia, they got a lot of good flights out of you know, LAX and San Francisco and stuff. So it's kind of, it, was, it was a toss-up in terms of cost. The hotel, of course, is the same as always. Um, so... That's interesting because I would have I would have guessed that maybe you would have saved at least I, I you, actually how much did, does a tournament cost you uh, uh, on average? You know, ball, ballpark. Like I said, just a, a ballpark average, just total run of the mill. I'd have to say like about two thousand bucks. Two thousand. Okay, I I yeah. thought it would be a lot higher than that. I would have. I would have guessed maybe about seven grand between hotels and, and traveling and food well, and lodging. And yeah. And so that, so that I just took into account the receipts from hotel and airfare. So that's not including food. There's a lot of factors that go into it that really kind of change it. For example, if I was going to take a trip to a tournament, you know, it depends on where, where it goes and where I'm starting from. So when I was in Colorado Springs flying out of, Denver airport you know if I'm going to fly to El Salvador it's actually pretty cheap you fly to Houston you get to El Salvador it's only a five six hundred dollar ticket and you spend three four hundred bucks on the hotel it's a thousand dollar trip not too bad and that particular hotel came with room and board so you're getting food too so not bad right that's right. pretty cheap but on the other hand if I'm like in Boston or even in Denver and I got to fly to Tokyo 
for the world championships, that's a $1,400 flight. The hotel is like eight or 900. So now you're into 24, 2,500 and that doesn't include food. So now you're paying food out there, you know, and so now you're talking about 27, 2,800. Now yeah. option three, depending on where you're at in the circuit, what your schedule looks like, whatever, we've got like the South American loop. So I'm going to fly from Denver down to Argentina. I do the tournament. That's your normal three days, which is $600 with a hotel. Then I do a three day training camp in Argentina. So now it's another five, $600 of hotel. Then I fly to Peru fight in that tournament for three or four days training camp, and then fly to Santiago, Chile fight in that tournament and then fly home. Now that trip's looking like seven to 10 grand, eight grand or something, right? You got all these flights in between hotels for two and a half to three weeks and food for two and a half to three weeks and maybe some random taxi cabs here and there sure. after winter. so so it really adds up depending on like i said what what's your actual trip look like or just average cost of a tournament average cost of a tournaments you know around around two two grand but like i said your trips as a whole can get hairy fast depending on what you're doing and who you're doing it with you know and how it goes down <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's really interesting. I I would have thought maybe the cost would have been a little bit less uh, going to Canada, but it is interesting to me that. Um, well, I mean, I know you were out of Boston, but I I was thinking, you know, had you flown up there, it wouldn't have been much much of a savings. At least that's how it sounds. Yeah. No, I looked at prices, and it it wouldn't have. And like I said, personally having my wife be able to, to drive with me, then it saves us money versus if she was going to fly out of Boston to Montreal with me, then you're paying double, right? So driving works for us in that light, um, which, uh, like I said, enabled her to come with me, and which usually doesn't happen because, like I said, paying airfare tickets is just outrageous for, you know, the situation. Of course, of course. So at the Montreal Grand Prix, you had an opportunity to fight – Teddy Renner, and you are the only person over the past, you know, in Teddy's career from Team USA that that, that has ever fought him. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting. I was as I was doing a little bit of podcast prep uh, for this interview. I I thought maybe there might have been a plus a hundred kilo fighter on Team USA that has faced Teddy before, but nope, you've been the only one. So I wanted to get an idea, and, and to me. We've discussed this before that I, I think from a record and competitive uh, standpoint that Teddy Renner is the greatest competitor competitor in, in judo history. I, I know there's a lot of people out there that'll say, you know, Yamashita, and they they wouldn't necessarily be wrong. But in terms of wins and losses, and that unbelievable winning streak that he had, which is almost unprecedented, um, I think he's one of the greatest of all time. Um, and some, some people would argue the greatest. So I'm kind of wondering, what is your game plan to even contend with somebody at that, with that kind of pedigree? I mean, do, do you come up with a game plan <laughs> yeah. yourself? Did you sit down with your coaches? Or did you just kind of, you know, get out there and, and just kind of hope for the best? Um, so personally, my situation um... – Maybe I'm wrong on this. This is just a personal, I guess, insecurity of mine. I've always felt very unpopular socially. So I don't get a whole lot of attention from the coaching staff. Um, 
my personal coaches weren't able to be there in the in the warm up area with me. You know, the like Jimmy or Travis, they weren't able to be at that tournament. So then I get the the Team USA coaches, right, which are our delegate coaches, um, like Justin Flores, Johnny Prado, Ed Liddy, those those people. And I've worked with all of them in the past, a ton of different tournaments, training camps. So, but I, you know, there's there's a lot going on at any given tournament, especially if you send a big group of people, right? You got lightweights, middleweights, heavyweights. They're all cutting weight on different days. Yeah. They got to weigh in on different days. They got to register. They got to go to the draw meeting. There's the, then the tournament's running, and so it's a it's kind of just um. You know, I don't know. It's just a fast rodeo, and then you win, you lose, and you go home. Whatever. So personally, I didn't have anybody to, I didn't have a coach to sit down and strategize. I, I just came up with my own kind of ideas on what, what did I want to do in this match? And I based that off of, you know, because being in a competitor, you, you obviously you watch the people in the bracket. But even before I was in plus 100, you know, you always watch a guy like Teddy. You're still a fan of the sport and you watch of other course. people's. Matches. So I've kind of seen his, his personal performance over the years. 2016, 2015, 2017, 2018, right? And I noticed all of his matches were getting longer. He wasn't throwing people as fast. He was going into more overtime. He was winning by more Shido calls versus the Epones he had won with earlier in his career. Right. So I'm kind of noticing, okay, he's getting older. He's got a huge body, which we know just anatomically wears down as they get older. It wears down earlier. You know, cardio, cardio goes down earlier. Um, so I was thinking, you know, if I can stretch the match out as long as possible, um, throw later into the match, try and get it into overtime, you know, he's got a huge reach on me. So honestly, the idea was I got to stay away from him until I was ready to get my hands on him. And then I got to shoot in fast and close the distance. And basically I had to, I was telling myself I'd have to attack off the grip more than not. Once a guy that's got that much reach on you and that much height puts two hands on you, even if it's a 50-50, right? We both have a collar and a sleeve, traditional right. kind of grip. You're at a huge disadvantage. He can reach Ashiwaza from half across the mat, you know. He can turn his hands. He can control your head easier. And so it's just – I was like, man, I got to attack off the grip, <laughs> try and not let him get two hands on. And I got to just, you know, until the match, and then maybe I can find a – a good throw or he'll get tired and mess up in Nawaza. That was kind of the overall, you know, the ideal I was hoping for. <laughs> so work. how, um, how, how much do you weigh? Cause, cause you looked, he, he looked a lot bigger than you. And I, I know you're oh, a big yeah. dude, but, but I don't know if you top 300 pounds. Um, no, definitely. I not. know <laughs> he did. I know he did in that match. I mean, I, I yeah. kind of joked. I kind of joked that he 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 looked really really big out there. Um, I, I've seen more recent pictures where he looks slimmed down, uh, if that's even possible for a guy his size. But but yeah, he he looked a little bit <laughs> out of shape um, with with uh, your match with him. So you you were probably giving up what maybe maybe eighty pounds. Uh, do, do you think that was the case? Do you even know? Let's see. Um, so the poundage is kind of hard cause I'm, I'm really used to kilos. So I know, Oh, sure, sure, sure. I'm, I was weighing about 117 kilos, which is about the 255 marker, 255 pounds. Yeah. I didn't do the math on him, but, um, 
he weighed in at like 153 or 155 kilos. So I was giving up like 35 kilos, which is 80, 85, 90 pounds, something like that. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's 341 pounds. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's yeah. massive. So, I, that's, yeah. I, I had guessed when, when I was covering, you know, his run in Montreal, I had guessed, I think I had guessed he was about 350. So I wasn't too far yeah. off. Yeah, because no, he, like he, norm- he normally floats around 30, you know, maybe 305, 310, you know, and I, I think I joked that it, you know, Teddy Renner looked like he ate Teddy Renner. I mean, he, he was a big, <laughs> yeah. he was a big dude. Um, yeah. Well, and so I found some guys that were that heavy before, but they were like my height, or maybe I even had an inch on, right? Like they're a little shorter and wider. Teddy being six foot eight was just, so much to handle his arms you know what i mean i was like dude it, he was just all over me with the grip it was so so you you, know, you did know. not so much <laughs> so I, i'm wondering up ahead of this match you did not have an opportunity to sit down with any of your coaches and maybe break down film, identify tendencies from a more strategic point of view Did that, that you didn't have that kind of opportunity. No, definitely not. No, um, that opportunity, like I said, I just kind of knew the general direction of his past two years worth of matches. Yeah. So like I said, I knew some of his patterns based on fatigue and, and Cheetos versus Epones. Obviously I know, his game hasn't really changed a lot since even when he was minus 100 or whatever back, you know, when he was really young, when he first started winning, he does a lot of Osoto, mm-hmm. a lot of Uchimata. You know, he's got a, a bit of a Sasai and some and a Harai Goshi and as well. Yeah, some Harai Goshi and some, like, occasionally a Sumigayashi. He kind of pulled that out yeah. for a while. So it's like, okay. And, and like I said, every match, I've, every tournament I've seen him in the last two years, at, this, at that point in Montreal, we're the same. He shoots the same throws. He does the same gripping patterns. He has the same movements. And, and I, I know I had a, a couple people say this to me for sure. So I, like, I know this is for a fact that at least a fair amount of people in the judo world were completely shocked that I was able to high step and escape his Uchimata. <laughs> I saw in that. that. In that yeah. yeah. And that first little bit. And that was, We've seen him win with that exact, like your first exchange, get his hands on, shoot the Uchimata, and the dude just falls for it. And so that was like my crowning achievement of that match, sad to say, was getting scored on by Teddy's Uchimata, you know? Um, yeah, I, I mean, that, I, I, I do remember that. That was um, because he, he, he had you lifted, and, and you, were, you were able to get out of that. And at the time, I was thinking to myself, hey, this, this could be a uh, – you know that this could be this could be an opportunity here because I thought that was, I thought that was one of his best attacks. Um, that that I I didn't expect Teddy to to get in there so quickly, uh, on you like that. But you had managed to escape it. So I I was thinking, yeah, you know, you got a, you got a good look at this thing. You, you know, do you um do you break down matches by? You know, while you're going through the match, do you do you kind of break it down in thirty second segments and stuff? Do you try and win? You know, you know, mm. maybe win the half, maybe win the first exchange. I mean, do you, do you break down little victories in in that sense and try and push the pace based on you know what happens between Hajime and Mate? You know, do you 
are, are you looking for certain things in those instances apart from not getting thrown but you, you know, yeah, do, yeah. You, do you have a, an, an approach that you like to uh try and achieve yeah so sorry i'm i'm a, I'm a, like, I'm a thinker you know i've always just evaluated and overanalyzed everything to the point of redundancy in my life so ideally that would be the case right the the current um, winning top performing athletes they definitely have to do that and there's different strategies depending on what your judo is what your weight class looks like and maybe even who you're fighting right you could do two different things in two different matches depending on who you're fighting the big thing is whether you train that way or not and in my personal experience with within the training centers I've been to and the coaches I've worked with across all of USA judo, even when I was taught to think that way, um, we never really implemented it in practice very well, which means there's not a habit formed. So then once you get down to the adrenaline and, you know, the referees are there and the spotlights on you, it's, you know, a lot of the time it's kind of more of a habits take over. And so it's just, you're as good as you're going to get and you got to kind of just wing it ideally what i used to tell myself was every mate whatever happened in the exchange i was going to leave it behind okay and i was just going to ask myself what can i do to win this next exchange and then i got to find an answer right while i'm walking back to my line so what can i do to win this next exchange attack off the grip right osoto off the grip um back up to the edge and then circle so that he's on the edge right like you can think of something like that kind of quick so my, my strategy was like, what can I do to win this exchange? Kill his sleeve, you know? And then that's really all the time you have to think in between stuff. The other path is that you have a coach that you work with regularly and you don't do any of the thinking. That's what the coach is for in theory, right? That's the only reason you would ever need a coach. Right. Because they're telling you something you can't see. They're telling you something that you missed and they're supposed to be helping you. Right. So if you're in a good system with good support, with coaches that work with you regularly, they know your judo, you know – their coaching cues if they say kill this second different things to two different athletes right so if you know what they're saying and they know your judo mate you end up and you're gonna you're supposed to look at your coach and they're supposed to say like coach igari's open you know off attack off the grip and you know okay i got drop say we're not gonna come in right but like i said we don't really some of our athletes have that in usa judo some of them don't personally i was one that never really had that okay and when I did, I would have with, with different coaches. So, like, at this tournament, I'd have Ed Liddy sit in my chair. The next tournament, I'd have Johnny Prado sit in my chair. Sometimes even on the same day at the same tournament, you'd get two different coaches because they'd be on, you know, the coach you had first would be on the mat with somebody else, and then you get onto the mat and you got a new coach with you now. So it's kind of a weird – in which case, like I said, the coaching you gets different. So after a couple of years of being frustrated, I decided, okay, I'm just going to make up my own stuff. I'm not going to look at the coaches. Like, I'm not going to care about what they say because it's not working for me. I just got to do my own game. Boy, that's got, that's got to be really tough. I mean, I, 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 when I think of, of uh, other sports, I mean, you can't switch head coaches in the middle of a, of a like, like, you know, I, as, as you know, I told you, I, I love watching the NFL. I mean, can you imagine yeah. switching the head coach in the middle of a game? 
<laughs> or, yeah. or, or or in the NBA, you know, if if uh, it, it, you know, it, it's not even one of those situations where it's an assistant where you've you've got a group of coaches that that think the right. exact way. You, you know, you got right. you have different coaches with different ideas and stuff. I mean, I, I would think it would be very difficult to have a a uniform message in, in that kind of a system. But I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't, I have never, never have, and never will be at that level. So I don't, I don't know what works and what doesn't work. I can't imagine, or may, maybe other countries do it that way. Um, I, I don't know if they do. Do you, do you know if that's the case, if they do it that way? Yeah. A lot, a lot of countries do. They have multiple coaches. Cause like I said, the tournament experience is the same. Like, you could have 90 kilos on mat one and head coaches out there with, with Axel Clairgay, right? 90 kilos. Sure. Yeah. And then, and then you're whoever your minus hundreds fighting on mat three or your, your minus 78s on mat three. So you're going to have the secondary coach and it's not, and that's fine. Cause like I said, there's, you know, five or six weight classes, you know, four to five weight classes a day with one to two athletes a weight class. So it makes sense that they're going to change. The difference is, Generally speaking, most countries, really like the high majority of these countries, have a centralized training program. And so your head coach and your two to three assistant coaches all live and train in Paris, France with all of your top tier French athletes, right? Right, right. And we don't have that in the U.S. So we coach from, from Florida who works with three or four of the top people. We got a coach from Colorado Springs who works with or three or four of the top people, right? And then currently, the last couple of years, J- Justin Forrest has been our head coach out of California. He actually doesn't have a judo school. He doesn't have any ranked athletes from his – he teaches judo at BJJ school. Yeah. And he, and he has – currently, he has one, one nationally ranked athlete um, that goes to some tournaments, you know. And so outside of that – so you just think, so I show up to the tournament and Justin's in my chair. And this isn't a knock on Justin by any means – you know, but I get there and I look, I look at the coach's chair and he's like, good, good. Do some more Ashiwaza and get him to move his feet on. Right. And, you know, that's the best you get. But as soon as a guy like Teddy gets down my back with his grip, man, Ashiwaza's not saving me. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Not, right. And it's not, like I said, it's not a knock on him, but that's the system that we're working with. Whereas normally, like I said, if we were all living and training in San Jose State University, Justin would know like, oh man, that's not going to help. I see Ajax every single day at practice. I know what's going to help him. He's got a, he's got kind of a sneaky uh, Tomoe Nage. So if Teddy gets a high grip on him and he leaves his armpit open, that means Tomoe Nage. There's for Tomoe Nage, right? So I'll tell him to do that. But like I said, if you only see a kid once, two or three months, best you can do him is cheer him on. And, and I've had coaches, not, not Justin, I'm going to definitely specify my experience, say, hey, honestly, I'm just going to be a cheerleader. So I'm going to pump you up. I'm going to give you a lot of energy. I'm going to be real positive in the coaching chair. That's the best I can do for you. And you walk into a match knowing the best thing I got is, is somebody on my side. Yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody yeah. that wants to see me win. And, that, and then you just know the fight's up to me from there. So what strategy I want, I got to live and die by my own sword. You know what I mean? I got to, I just got to live it for, for my, my own sake. There's no, they're not going to yell at me when I get off the mat because it's not their fight to fight and they know it, you know, Sure. So I want to talk, uh, continue a little bit on, on your match with Teddy. Um, what, I, I guess, what was it like? I mean, 
you know, somebody so much larger and, and was there, was there a sense that he was rusty from your point of view or, or, um, you know, were, were you very confident going into that match? I mean, how, how was you, how was your overall feeling, you know, right, right when you're, you know, before you step out there, uh, heading into that match? Um, yeah. So like I said, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of an overthinker sometimes, which is both good and bad. My personal situation, like leading into that match was, was pretty rough as far as financial life goes and injury rates and, um, my performance the last little while. So it was, um, you know, not ideal <laughs> seeing, seeing having him in the draw first round. And, you know, it's tough when you, when you take losses regularly and then you get like, right. Like you said, considered to be the greatest of all time. And you're like, well, you know, shoot, like what, <laughs> yeah. What's that going to be like? But on the other hand, it does kind of free up the nerves. Cause instead of having a guy you should beat, and then lose to that person and think, man, I blew it. You, you got nothing to lose. It's like, man, you're fighting against the greatest of all time. So open up, fight your best judo, leave, leave everything you can on the mat and just, and just fight your judo. And if you surprise him, if you surprise the world, you surprise yourself, like, great. If you get smashed with Uchimata in the first exchange, that's honestly to be expected at this point watching his judo. That's what he does to most people. So yeah, <laughs> whatever. Um, you know, like I said, I kind of had my key points that I wanted to do in the match, move faster than him, attack off the grip, try and avoid him getting two hands on and uh, last long in the match. Um, now, were you, actively, honestly, were you actively trying to control his dominant right hand? Cause it, yes, it, I was. Seemed, well, okay, because it seemed like that's what you were trying to do. Uh, if I, you know, if I recall that match correctly, I, I remember a few exchanges where you're really trying to capture that sleeve. Um, but, but he, he was able to evade that, uh, a, a couple of times. Yeah, I was, I was actually, I was pretty disappointed with how tight his sleeves were. <laughs> Cause I felt there you know, a couple of times I was like, Oh, I got a sleeve like perfect. And then, uh, man, he moved his arm and it was gone. And I was like, well, that was not good, you know, because now I'm really close to very long arms. So it yeah. kind of back kind of backfired. But I was definitely trying to trying to get that sleeve and keep him off of my neck and, and from getting down my back. And like I said, I felt I was actually pretty after the first first exchange was pretty really, pretty rough, right? I had to just take a knee, take the Shido and yeah. uh just kind of walk away saying like, okay, like if I if I didn't do that, he would have thrown me. So live to see another fight. The next couple exchanges I actually felt pretty good about it. And I was, you know, I was a little surprised and, and in a very good way, like, oh, you know what, like you're actually kind of making this guy think. And, and definitely I felt like he was a little bit kind of, I kind of felt like he was rusty because it had been a long time since he fought. I also felt like maybe he wasn't taking the match too serious. I think he kind of felt like I'm just going to squash this kid and I got the tough guys later in the bracket. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So I feel like I definitely did kind of get at least give him a wake up call where he was like, all right, you know what, this kid's kind of annoying me. I better, I better start fighting this kid and I better beat him. Well, yeah, you pushed him. It's a nice feeling. You, you yeah. pushed him. I, there's no question about it. I, I, you, you know, so even though it's his first match back and he was probably rusty, um, you, you, you didn't get thrown in ten seconds. You know, you definitely pushed him. Yeah, and so yeah, that that I mean, I was happy about that. You know, and it was. Coming into the match, you know, like I said, seeing a draw like that and um, 
I was kind of, I was actually, I was warming up with Jack Hatton. Um, today's his birthday. Ah. So he, he's kind of been, yeah, he's kind of been on, on my mind a lot lately. Yeah, um, of course. So, you know, of course, shout out to him and RIP, but he was actually my warm up partner for that match. Oh. And um, yeah, and, and he's a huge, he was a huge baseball fan. And so we're in the warm up, you know, and, he, you know, I'm kind of working out and he didn't really talk. He was kind of letting me do my thing. And then he, you know, he asked me halfway through, I made a joke, you know, to kind of lighten the situation. And he was like, okay. He's like, so how are you feeling? You know, and I told him, I was like, you know, it's actually, it's pretty cool. Like, it's kind of a cool feeling. Cause like you said, a lot of people don't get to fight like what's considered the best in their sport or just even a legend in their sport. You know what I yeah. mean? You don't get to, you know, always do that. You don't get your shot like that all the time. And, but I told him, I was like, you know, I was like to put it in baseball terms. I mean, it's like pitching against Babe Ruth. You know what I mean? It's like, that's what it felt like. I was like, you know, Absolutely. It's, he might crush a homer out of the park in front of your home crowd, but I mean, come on, he's Babe Ruth, you know, and you gotta, you gotta throw a couple, couple curveballs his way in a fastball and see what, you know, you had to make him work for it at least. That's nice. You know? Yeah. But it was a cool feeling coming into it. And like I said, the knowing the difference of like, statistically speaking, I don't have a lot of business winning this match. It, it takes the pressure off because you can just go out there and just open up and, and completely just, man, I'm just going to try it. I'm going to hit some crazy foot sweeps. I'm going to try some grips and, and try not to get thrown with Uchimaru, you know, see what happens. And it was a fun match. I, I definitely look back on it nostalgically. It's probably the, you know, one of, of all the losses I take, you know, losing always sucks and it doesn't feel good. But of, course. of all my losses in my life, it's one of the easiest pill to swallow, you know. I was a little disappointed because when he did throw me with the Sasai, it was really a, a pretty big muscle. You know, he just kind of made me, <laughs> made me fall. Didn't like. Blast yeah. Me he, he, tra he trapped, he trapped your angle and or he trapped your ankle and, and essentially just turned your shoulders and, and just kind of timbered like a big tree. Yeah. So it was a fun match though. And like I said, it makes a difference with the tournament was run well and, the whole crowd, you know, being French Canada, they all, they all knew Teddy. And so, of course, they were cheering for him, which is never a great feeling, you know, Teddy, Teddy. And you're like, oh, yeah. come on, yeah. come on. <laughs> you know, my, my one, one person in the stands, my wife's cheering for me against like five, 600 locals, you know, <laughs> I'm like, I can still hear you, babe. I, yeah. know, you're, I know you're up there cheering for me. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to, uh, cover something and 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 this actually isn't something that I had planned to talk about but I I wanted to get your take on this um you know you you were talking about losing a Teddy and and you know maybe some of the other losses you've had on your you know during your career you know it, it's it's an it's an up and down life for for most athletes on the world tour what um how does the IGF or or even USA Judo or or the, the emotional and mental support of the sport and and look you brought up Jack Hatton um certainly we all know the tragic circumstances around um you know the young man's life and I I guess I'm a little curious you know what kind of toll does being in this sport take on a person I'm, I'm sure everybody's different but a lot of times I hear about the, um, 
people that come come away from the Olympics and they lose and they, and they're in this great depression for weeks and sometimes months and you know some people never get over losing in the Olympics and I, I would think that's for some of these other big tournaments it's something similar. Do you have a support system outside of your family to make sure that things are going okay or do athletes in general have that kind of support system? Um, well, so, I mean, first, of course, I can only really speak for my experience on team USA. Sure. What, what I lived through personally and what I witnessed my closer teammates, you know, so I don't, I can't speak for everyone's situation. Um, to be completely honest, judo is a bit of an obscure sport in the United States. <clears throat> so, that already is kind of strange because if I was, if I was playing like college football and then I went into the NFL or even if it's just college ball is a big deal out here in the U S right. Yeah. And people know about it and people like sympathize and empathize with the athletes a lot more. And they're like, Oh, that was a tough loss, you know? Um, and they really feel for you and they all watch the game. Almost nobody in my life, even my closer family didn't regularly watch my matches Mm-hmm. I didn't get a lot of messages after winning or losing. Um, it was just, they they just kind of are like, Oh, Ajax is off like doing this judo thing. He's somewhere South America, I guess Europe this time. That's pretty cool. And occasionally get some messages. And, you know, my wife would always text some of my closer family members and be like, Hey, he's fighting at 2 AM mountain standard time. You know, here's the, here's the IJF link to watch the videos. And some of them would watch them sometimes, but um, yeah. But even like, yeah, definitely organizationally, there was, I, I felt almost no support um, from like any particular coach, trainer, teammates, occasionally, you know, the teammates you got closer with, they would be like, man, that was really tough, but you fought super good. Like, that was awesome. You're, you're, you're so close. I can see you're about to start winning but half the time they're taking their tough losses at the same time. So sure. you're, you're trying to be there for them while they're trying to be there for you, or you're both just mutually like, ah, f- fuck it, you know, tough weekend. Let's just get on to the next tournament already. Forget about this. Yeah. And, right. Uh, you know, like I said, organizationally, you got a few coaches and they're traveling away from their families. They're usually underfunded like the athletes. And, um, you know, there's, you know, like one coach for six to seven athletes, realistically, you know, got 25 athletes and four or five coaches, you know, it's three coaches maybe. So there's, they're spread a little thin, just getting through the tournament, let alone trying to be there for athletes afterwards. And we don't have psychologists or athletic trainers that usually travel with us, Pan Am championships or worlds. You'll, you'll get some extra staff like that, but generally speaking, you don't have those. And there's really like almost no regular support system unless you personally are very close with your coach from from your training center you know what i mean or you're really close with but even like me and jack i mean i I would consider us really close and i i talked to him a couple times where i said hey man if you ever want to talk about something you know i'm not your coach you know and i i had retired just a few weeks you know before before everything went down yeah and i was like hey i'm not even a teammate anymore i'm not on i'm not on these trips i'm not gonna like spread your gossip like we all know it happens, you know, there's a lot of toxic people in every realm of life, work sure. or school or whatever. So it happens in judo too. And so I'm like, yeah, I was just like, Hey man, you know, neutral guy over here, like neutral guy. If you ever want to talk, just, just reach out, just hit me up, you know? And he, he didn't, 
I don't know. He didn't feel comfortable, I guess, or he just didn't believe that I would truly be neutral or maybe he thought I would try and tell him how to be better. And that's not what he was looking for. I don't know. So he never took that opportunity, you know, and I've always been kind of bummed about it. But other than that, I mean, that, that was, and that's the only reason I made that offer because I know he didn't have anybody else to, to even reach out to, you know, and neither did I, and neither did most of the athletes. Like I said, if, if you have anybody you can reach out to, they're usually in as bad a position as you are. They just lost the world championships too, you know, they yeah. just tore their LCL too. So what are you going to come complain to them that your back hurts when they're sitting on ice with a torn ACL or something, you know, like it's always, there's always kind of this. And then realistically, I mean, it's a hand to hand combat sport with deep roots and a lot of, lot of whispers of like um, performance enhancing substance abuse, which, you know, so then, so then you're like, what are we really up against? You know? And it just seems like this overwhelming issue that um, like I said, it's kind of insurmountable. And, and who do you talk to about it? You don't have a lot of people. And, and the old school ideology was you've got to work harder than everybody else. And, so, so you lost, you don't get sad about it. You get mad and you work out more, you know, and we all grew up like that. So we do that. And um, what happens when you, you get mad and you work, you go home and you work out harder than before and you're more motivated than ever. And you're putting in and you're taking notes and you're watching your own films and you got nobody there to help you. And then a month later you go to the next tournament and you still fucking lose. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're just, then you're just, then you're like, Hey man, I mean, I'm doing it. I'm doing what you're telling me. I'm working out harder than that guy. I'm, I, you know, we've all been to the same training camps. I can see they're, they're kind of lazy, but you know what I mean? There just comes a point where you realize, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, but they're, but they're, but you're, so you're saying you kind of go, you, you see a lot of these same people. They're, they're not, are you saying that you sometimes with some of the, some of the successful people, you're seeing them do really the same things you're doing, but they're, they're getting some advantage in some other way. Yeah. Whether it's coaching, physical therapy, technical advice, maybe they were honestly. There's the curve where natural talent comes into play. You know, if you got the same two people with the same coaching, and if if you have all the same support systems, and you have the same gym numbers, right? Then then who's going to win? Whoever's like naturally talented, or right. whoever's more focused that day. So there just comes a point where, like I said, it's it's this overwhelming thing, and um, the other thing is. I mean, most people at that level have been ingrained into their souls that winning Olympic gold is the most important thing in their lives. And you're not just talking about like, oh, since I was 15, I got serious about Judy. You're talking about like five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids. And all they've dreamed about is Olympic gold. And they, you know, they won the world championships. They're first seated in the Olympics. And then they lose for whatever reason. They, they had an injury. They just plain blew the semifinals, um, weird referee call, you know, whatever happened. And so they're depressed because, yeah, it's been the pinnacle of their life up until this point is winning this tournament. And they all feel like they've worked harder than everybody else, you know, and you lose. And it's, 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 it's a tough pill to swallow, man. A lot of people, they just can't, you know, you just don't get over a loss like that very easy. I mean, I stayed in the sport probably longer than I ought to have from a reasonable, you know, from like a logical standpoint, because I couldn't get over not even qualifying for the Olympics, you know, and then I stayed longer and it made my situation now has been worse. I spent more money doing it. I took on more injuries doing it, you know? Yeah. I've got a later start in, in life 
and all of that was just clawing at the fact that I'm like, oh, I got to at least be an Olympia. If I can't win Olympic gold, I've got to at least bargain and at least go to the Olympics and march in the open ceremonies. And then, like I said, when that didn't happen, you know, I mean, it's a tough pill to swallow to say the least. And there's not, like I said, there's not really any resources of people to talk to you. Usually when you talk to anybody else around you about something like that, they don't really listen or take on your, your emotions. They try and tell you, well, you know, you could come back. Well, if you work really hard, you can save some money. Well, that's your own fault. Cause you went to the wrong training center. You know what I mean? They, they either give you solutions or they tell you why, why it's your own fault. And why that's it's your own fault, right? now you're, you know what I mean? And, and I was there for some of Jack's, um, I don't know, tougher moments socially, or, or I don't know how to say it. Like I saw him getting yelled at. I heard what was said, you know? Sure. I was tough. You know, it's, it's, like I said, that's tough on the kid. And I, I, I always felt for him given his situation and stuff. So I don't know, but like I said, it's just other countries probably have more psychologists available and more therapy sessions and other countries are coached by a lot of people like that, that, that live through the fifth place instead of bronze, you know? And so they kind of empathize a little more and, and it's almost worse to have real champions as your coaches because they're usually, they're usually less empathetic and they're usually a little more egotistically driven. Yeah. It's like when Michael Jordan you know? was, uh, <laughs> he came out yeah. of retirement to play for the wizards. Like he was making teammates cry because, because you yeah. know, he was the ultimate, he was the ultimate winner and just didn't understand. Well, just, just do it the way that I did it. But it's like, yeah. you're Michael Jordan. I, yeah. I'm it's not that different. guy. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, like I said, it's almost, you almost want somebody that, that got that close and didn't quite make it. Cause they're going to know when to push you and they're going to know, well, what, what happened to them that they, that, that they cracked at that last minute when they could have been on the podium, you know, or what, what circumstance led them to feel like they underperformed their true potential? They're going to be a little more aware of the situation of like what it's like to underperform, you know? Um, but I, I don't know. That's just a personal philosophy. Nobody's going to take my word for it. I'm not the champion, right? That's sure. the thing. Right? Culturally, we take the champion's word for it always. All right, so that's going to do it for part two of my interview with Ajax Tadehara. I'm very grateful that he spent uh, all the time that he has and been very patient with me in trying to get him on the podcast in a timely manner. I'm, I'm terrible with interviews. It's, it's, it's not so much that I'm terrible. It's just my life is so busy that sometimes things come up or I forget about doing things and stuff. It's just, you know, having a, you know, like I've said so many times before, I just got, you know, I got four kids and, and a wife and a career and two dogs and a cat. Like it's just so much going on. And, and of course now it's football season. So, so that's distracting me even more. But um, I'm again, I'm very grateful for his patience and his time. I'm going to have part three released sometime over the next two weeks. And, and I, I decided to, I thought maybe I could finish the interview with just two parts, but um, that just wasn't happening. We just, I mean, I've got three hours worth of conversation. It's amazing. And I, again, Ajax, I know you're listening to this. I really appreciate your time over, uh, over these past few weeks and, and getting this conversation together and stuff. Can't wait to uh, release part three, but that is concludes part two. So I think I'm going to wrap things up here. I will have an after party for those of you who like to listen to that. Um, I know there's a lot of you that do. 
And for those that may be new listeners, the after party is something that I decided to add at the very end of my podcast where I talk about things that are not related to judo at all. Uh, Just things that I'm watching on TV, places I've been, yeah, that kind of thing. So that's what the after party is. I I try to keep it to under 10 minutes. Sometimes I go a little bit over. But uh, so, yeah. So with that, I hope you all have a great day. I hope you all have a great rest of the week. Train hard. Stay safe out there. And until next time, I'm out. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Open Gangnam Style. After party starts in 15 minutes. All right, so the after party. Boy, there is a lot that I want to try and get covered in as quick as possible. So I'm just kind of going to rapid fire some of these things. So first things first, I got to say NBA 2K20 is probably the most infuriating video game I've ever played in my life. And and I'll tell you why. It's It was the my career mode. That is just driving me up a wall. I mean, it's not anymore, but I, I downloaded the game because I was offered it for free through the PlayStation Store. So I'm playing it, and it's fun. It, I love playing as the old characters or whatever, because Larry Bird's my favorite uh, basketball player because I grew up in Boston or Boston area. So I decided, hey, I'm going to do my career. I'm going to create a virtual version of myself. I'm going to make them look like me. Except this time I'm going to be six foot ten and two hundred fifty pounds. So I start the game in the my career version. I'm playing my first NBA game as myself in this video game, and I don't get it because video game version of Dave Roman that's half my current age and twice as tall as me practically is actually a worse basketball player than real life Dave Roman at five foot six and for you know forty five years old. I. I was missing layups. I was missing dunks. I There were times that I was about to rifle my controller through the wall. I mean, that's how frustrating 2K was for me. And then finally, I realized that I had to spend these virtual coins and stuff to raise my attributes. And after about two months of playing, I've, I've actually got a pretty good basketball player now. But man, that was infuriating. I mean... At the very least, NBA 2K, if you're going to create a player that's six foot ten, you should be able to automatically dunk the basketball and not miss when you try. So, yeah, I've been playing a lot of that. I got, um, just recently, this came out about a week ago, uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater a 1 and 2 got remastered for the PlayStation 4. And, and I jumped all over it because what you guys don't understand, uh, so those of you that are 30 and under probably closer to 25 and under like we spent a lot people my age spent a lot more time outside doing things and sports and activities than than the younger generation I know I'm talking generalities and I want to be clear I'm talking generalities I I I mean obviously a lot of you doing judo have been active in other sports but many of you have not made a lot of you out there your first endeavor in anything athletic has been judo so for me as a kid in the 80s, 
um, I grew up skateboarding and I grew up watching Tony Hawk, you know, Steve Caballero, Lance Mountain, you know, the entire Bones Brigade. You know, Lance was my guy. So I was a skater growing up as a kid. As a matter of fact, I've always attributed skateboarding uh, to my ability to adapt to judo so quickly. Because in, in both judo and skateboarding, you need a high degree of balance, uh, coordination, ag- agility, dexterity. And most importantly, in order to be good at skateboarding, um, you have to be able to put your bodies in unnatural positions to be successful. And that's what I think the beauty of, of both skateboarding and judo is, is that you, you're doing things that are not natural in terms of everyday movements in order to find success. Like, like, like perfect example, like uh, I can still do a kickflip burial even at 45 years old. I can get on a skateboard and still do that trick. But the way you set up for a kickflip burial, like you, you don't stand like that in in normal everyday to day life. And just like with judo, like you look at the mechanics of a tayatoshi, like you, that's not a movement that you do in anything else in life but judo. But you know, like in football, you know, you're running, you're you're cutting, you're you know, you're pushing, you're you're throwing. Like those are those are more natural movements. But for judo, like in in skateboarding, those movements are not natural. So. I've always attributed um, skateboarding helping me tremendously in judo. So I grew up watching, you know, the Bones Brigade, you know, the Search for Animal Chin, you know, Future Primitive, uh, what else? The Bones Brigade video show. I love that stuff. So Tony Hawk Pro Skater video game came out when I was in my 20s. So I was kind of like reliving my youth all over again even though I was still young and you know when I was 24 years old that's still very young and that game was one of the most fun games I had ever played in my life and then Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 came out and that game was even better I from for me Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 is probably in my top 10 games of all time so going back to the remastered I definitely jumped all over that and you know for me I think I've said this before when I'm playing games like Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2, I feel young again. I, I, I think ultimately that's always been my fascination with, with video games. It, it, keeps me, it keeps me grounded in a way, in, in a way that with the daily pressures of life and being mature and, and all this kind of stuff, um, video games make me feel young. Because, like, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing other sports, when I'm doing judo or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I'm re I'm reminded that I'm almost you know I'm getting closer to 46 now like I'm reminded every time I step on the mats that I'm not young and then you know having a career you know family and stuff I'm reminded that I'm not young and sometimes it can you when you get to these ages you can kind of forget gosh what was it like to be young and for me video games makes me feel young I connect through uh, I, I connect to both of my sons through video games. I, I I can connect a little bit to that generation through video games because <laughs> we all experience the same frustrations. Anybody playing NBA 2K knows exactly what I'm talking about. So, you know, I don't know if a game like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater would even appeal to somebody in their 20s today. But man, for me, that that when that game came out, it just it just was awesome. It was awesome 20 plus years ago. And and it's awesome today. All right, so let's see what else. Oh yeah, so the last time I had a uh, 
an after party was was about a week or two before I was going to go on my vacation to the Keys. Which so, just here to report, I took my vacation to the Keys, um, and it was awesome. And when I came back, I took uh, one of those COVID tests. Which let me tell you, I can't remember if I talked about this before. Um, COVID taking a taking a COVID test is horrible. They they shoved this foot long Q tip up my nose. And I'm pretty sure they were stabbing my brain and my eyeball all at the same time. I mean, it, it was really uncomfortable. My body was practically convulsing because I, I, it just wasn't used to having a foreign object <laughs> shove way up there. And then because um, because this was one of those drive through sites. And then the lady in the car next to me was screaming her head off. It, it was just it was horrible. So came back uh, from my vacation in the Keys. I was fine. But I just wanted to take a COVID test just so that I could tell people and look people in the face and say, hey, you know, I'm COVID free. You know, I, I followed all the guidelines and everything like that. So I I, I haven't been sick. I've been feeling great. I also went um, on a couple of on a couple of uh, weekend trips to this place in Florida on the Gulf Coast, which I'm not going to say what it is because I went to what I think is the best beach in the west coast of Florida, in a place that not too many people go, at least not during the summer. And this beach is off the beaten path. I had to drive through a fanci- the fanciest neighborhood I've ever seen in my life in order to get to this beach. So all I'm going to say is that this beach was awesome. I found my spot in all of Florida. And uh, I'm not saying where it is. You're just going to have to take my word for it. <laughs> I had an awesome trip. And uh, I had a great view of the Gulf of Mexico from my uh, from my rented studio apartment, which was really great, by the way. I I went on this trip um, kind of to with my wife to kind of figure out, gosh, you know, could we live in a studio apartment once the kids are out overlooking the Gulf of Mexico? Could we deal with living in a space that um, is about the size of my my bedroom currently? And the answer is yes, I could definitely do it. Uh, I I can, you know, I have a decent sized house and a big yard and all that kind of stuff. But for me personally, you know, if if it was just me, I can I can live a very minimal lifestyle and and would prefer it most of the time. Quite fr- quite frankly, I've even debated whether or not I'd like to move back to New York City where I lived as a kid and you know live in a studio apartment you know somewhere in Greenwich and take the subway everywhere I wanted to go. I could do that. I don't know if my wife could, but but I definitely could do that. So let's see. On the TV front, The Boys is back on Amazon. And I am really hating that they are releasing the episodes week to week. I think that's the dumbest idea. You know, obviously many people have busy lives and they want the ability to watch TV on their own time in their own way. And sometimes people out there dedicate an entire day to to power through an entire season. So when you when you drip the episodes like that, it's just um, I don't like that they do that. Now, Disney Plus, uh, it, that's what it's called, right? Disney Plus, something like that. Yeah, I, I know I have it. I just don't. I, whatever. Disney Plus did that with The Mandalorian, but I can understand that because they had a new service that they wanted to gain more customers and in 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 what they didn't they didn't want people to to sign up for Disney Plus 
watch the entire season of the Mandalorian in in about uh, ten hours or whatever, and and then cancel their Disney Plus subscription. They didn't want that, but Amazon they have no reason to do that because most people that have the Amazon Prime uh, subscription aren't it, they're they're not going to cancel their subscription just to watch a TV show, especially when they get all these other benefits. I know I'm sounding like a commercial, I'm not intending to, but that's the that's the truth. So with The Mandalorian, it made sense. It makes no sense to do this for the boys. And I'm very frustrated. And a lot of people are, you know, giving the show low ratings because of that. And I don't blame them. I, I completely understand that. And I am all I also just finished watching this show. God, there's been so many shows since the last time I did one of these. I can't possibly cover them all. But the most recent one that I finished was this show called Away on Netflix. It was pretty good. I I think some of the, uh, I I'm not gonna spoil it. I I can't spoil it just yet. But the storyline was pretty good. The science involved was hokey. The problems that they encountered in space was even worse. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna give it away. It's just, I'll just say the water issue was a dumb problem to have in this show. But you know, seeing this show does give me hope. Um, I, or, or at least a little bit of hope and optimism. I would love in my lifetime to be able to witness uh, a mission to Mars, a successful mission to Mars. I'm not talking about a, a a Land Rover either, which I think in of itself is just a tremendous achievement for mankind, even though we achieved that a long time ago. But a person landing on Mars would just be a tremendous thing that I would love to see in my life. Oh, and you know what? Speaking of Mars, leave it to the government, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, um, you know, financial crises, health crises abound and stuff. Leave it to the government to just let it slip out there. Hey, you know what? UFOs are real and we don't know what they are, but they're doing things that uh, no man-made craft can do. (laughs) Leave it to the government to announce that what should be the, the the greatest story in mankind. And this story ends up getting buried in like page six of the New York Times and stuff. Any other year, this should have been front page news. And I don't know if it was buried on page six. I'm just saying, you know, you know, Trump pandemic. You, you know, financial crises and stuff, you know, and, and aliens get a gets a small article. I, I mean, or, or I should say UFOs. But I think I think with the government releasing these videos at an official capacity that we're not too far away from first contact and the government knows it. Either they know it or they think that such an event is imminent I mean, for any of you out there that have been ignoring any stories that have to do with COVID or or the general election in the United States, if you guys have been paying attention, there's been a lot of stories uh, about UFO sightings. There's been stories about um, potential evidence of life on Venus. I mean, this this stuff is coming out, and, and I'm not going to go as far as to say that the stereotypical aliens that we see in movies and stuff that that's what they actually look like I'm not saying that but with these little nuggets of information that keep coming out I mean 
it almost feels it almost feels like as a parent you're taking your 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 toddler to get a bunch of shots and you're trying you you're try instead of shocking the toddler with with the needle like the, this needle which is what I remember when I was a kid I was just shocked with this needle <laughs> this needle that seemed like about 2 feet long I mean that's that's how it felt when I was like 4 years old and I remember that not not a pleasant memory but it's almost like as if a parent is trying to make something scary the most best news possible either by doing that or or by just passing it off as not a big deal and that's kind of how it feels like it is in the press it's like oh hey look at this we have some some uh, video of aliens or, or of ufos just flying around our cameras picked it up we don't know what it is but hey you know keep worrying about trump and the election and the pandemic you know just we just wanted to let you know like that's how it feels the government is doing what the government is doing in the media so I'm just saying be ready because, you know, I hate sounding like one of those conspiracy theorists, but um, I think within the next five to ten years, we're going to have evidence of uh, life outside of this planet. All right, that's it for me. I'm out.